Well, I want to welcome you here to the last week of the summer, last week of August, and we're going to continue today on our sermon series, Walking Through the Book of Jeremiah, which up until this date and this passage really hasn't been filled with a lot of cheery news. And we've had a lot of good things that we've drawn out of it. The Lord has shown us some amazing transcendent truth that apply to us to hear today. And it's been true and good for us to know, but I wouldn't call it cheery or happy. And uh, I'm excited because this week and next week especially, the passages are a little bit on the happier side. Not that you always have to be, you know, like rabbits hopping around happy, but it's great when the, the scriptures give us some nice encouragement. And so we're going to look at Jeremiah 29 today. It's filled with God's timeless truth. And I think more than any other passage that we've looked at up until this point, this passage is more closely aligned with our present context and the questions we ask of what does it mean to be a people that are living for God in the midst of a country and a society that isn't necessarily committed to him. And these are the words that Jeremiah has for people. It's a letter that he wrote to a people that were living in exile. Now, None of us here that I know of have been taken into exile where a foreign invader has come and brought us to another country and taken us into exile to live. We're not living in captive in that way. But in many ways, in many ways, we are, as the Apostle Peter would say, sojourners and exiles here in this world and in this land. And I would argue that this has always been the case ever since the advent of Christ and the advent of the church that we've been spiritual exiles and foreigners here in this world, but I think it's becoming more and more evident and apparent for many of us that we truly are sojourners and exiles. Now, there's a great commentator that started to capture this in terms of what it looks like to be a Christian in American society, and he gave this very simplistic rubric. Now, like all simplistic rubrics, it does not capture the thorough expanse of all details of everybody's life. And so if you're sitting there and say, don't put me in a box, you can't contain me, you're right. This rubric will not contain you. But generally speaking, I thought it was pretty good. He said that in U.S. society, in terms of living as a Christian committed to the historic standards of the faith, that up until about the 70s maybe, plus or minus, we were living in what he would call the good society. So the relationship between Christianity and society was generally good. That's because the ideals and the morals and the ethics, even if people didn't hold necessarily to the spiritual parts of the faith, there was general alignment around the prevailing mores and ethics in society that generally aligned with what Christians would say is ethical. And so while people might look at Christians as saying, while you're too good, or you don't party with us, or you don't have fun like anybody else, generally people looked at Christians as good people. And then somewhere in the 70s, 80s, these are plus or minus 10 years, it switched to the neutral relationship. This was the relationship where it says, you do you, I do me, you believe in whatever you want to believe in, I do what I want, as long as you don't try to push your religion down my throat, we're good. So that's what you'd call the neutral society. And then probably in about 2005 plus, depend, earlier if you're in a certain cities and later if you're in other places, generally speaking, it switched to sort of a bad relationship, a frictional relationship, a relationship that's more troubled, where we're almost reverting back to the time when Christianity 
first came onto the scene, and the pagans looked at Christians, and there's a famous Roman historian that wrote, these immoral Christians. And so for pagans in the Roman society, Christians were considered immoral, not because they were against the Bible, but because they were against the prevailing morals of the society at that time. And I would say the same is becoming more and more true for us here today, which is society generally can sometimes look at Christians and say, they are immoral. They are intolerant. They don't think and believe the things that we believe. And so the relationship is being challenged. It's frictional. So the question is, what should Christians do? Now, of course, we can't cover all of this in one short message. Uh, There's a lot to talk about. But today I want to look at one perspective. One perspective that gives us some thoughts for what does it look like for us to be people of faith, people of hope, people of joy, even if we live in, generally speaking, what might be considered a semi-fractured relationship with society. And so for that, we're going to look at this letter that Jeremiah has here in Jeremiah chapter 29. So if you have your Bibles, you can go there now. Jeremiah chapter 9, it's a letter to the exiles. First verse says this, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders and the exiles. Now, it was interesting at this time, so if you remember all this series, we're talking about how Jeremiah came to proclaim God's truth. He said, repent and turn back to God's plans for you, otherwise God will bring judgment on you. And, uh, and so he's going back and forth, and the people of Israel, or Judah, excuse me, continue to reject him and continue to reject him. And now in Jeremiah 29, we're in a place where a partial exile has actually happened where the Babylonians have come and taken some of the members of Judah and brought them into exile. And it's interesting, this, the second verse gives us a clue about how they did exile during this uh, phase, how the Babylonians retained control over those countries that became what a historian would call a vassal state or a dependent state. So what they would do is they would actually take the thinkers and the TikTok influencers and the artists and the craftsmen and those of import in the society, and they would take them over to Babylon, where they could keep their enemies, the influencers, the troublemakers close, and they left sort of the rest of society back in Judah. And so you know how a lot of societies have the 80-20 rule, 20% of the people do most of the work or most of the thinking or most of the inventing, 80% sort of go on. So they left the 80% back in Judah, and they took the important people, the thinkers, the influencers with them to uh, Judah. And this is something that you find in history. Verse 2 gives us that clue. It says, uh, this was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah, the craftsmen, the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. So this is how they retained control. They took the people who were important away and they left the 80% back in Judah. So one interesting point here, before we jump into the advice in Jeremiah's letter, One interesting point that we get from the context is that this shows us that Jeremiah was likely so despised by his people, so rejected by his people that it's likely that the Babylonians did not even consider him a a leader enough to take him to Babylon. In other words, they didn't consider him as part of the 20%. 
So they looked at him and they said, this guy's been preaching and smashing pots and bringing all these sermons to light to the people here in Judah. And they're putting him in stocks. They're whipping him. They're mocking him. They're telling him to run away, go away. No one's going to listen to this guy. In fact, it's good that we keep him around because he's going to keep people from getting in trouble because they'll just do the opposite of what he says to do. So they took the thinkers, the influencers, and they left Jeremiah. They didn't even consider Jeremiah an influence someone of importance. This was God's prophet. Now, this reinforces for us the reality that God's calling in our lives to be faithful isn't necessarily validated by immediate fruit or popularity that we can point to. In fact, I would suggest that immediate fruit and popularity might be a yellow flag. It's not definitely a yellow flag, but it might even be a yellow flag. Now, this is a challenge for us because our brains are programmed for progress. Our brains are programmed for change. And so, for instance, it's easy to lose weight because you can go, I'm 200 pounds, then 195, then 190, then 185. But what's it hard to do if you're ever trying to lose weight? It's hard to maintain that weight loss because you've lost this dopamine feedback, this desire feedback of seeing actual progress happen. We are wired to see progress and to get joy and happiness out of progress. And there's a lot of good things about that, that God created us to enjoy progress because that has sort of given us the impulse to create and to think and to advance in medicine and building. And so there's a lot to that that's good about us. But since we are wired that way, we have to be careful not to accidentally superimpose that impulse to crave progress and change and growth onto our walk with God, and to always expect faithfulness to equal immediate fruitfulness right then and there. This wasn't true for Jeremiah. He certainly was extremely faithful. He was rejected and rejected and rejected and yet retained faithfulness to God, and he didn't see any fruit that he could point to in his life often. This isn't true for many people in the Bible. It isn't true for many Christians throughout history. Now, this isn't to depress us. (laughs) You say, man, Jesse, you're really giving us all the good news in this Jeremiah path, all this uplifting words for this series. Actually, I think this is quite encouraging. I think this is quite encouraging because it shows us that in God's eyes, Jeremiah was living in the right way. He was responding to God's call in his life. God validated the life and work of Jeremiah despite Jeremiah not seeing immediate fruit right in front of him. I think the same is true for us. Our calling is to be like Jeremiah, to be faithful, just to be faithful, to be faithful, not to rely on immediate fruit, not to superimpose our need for progress on our walk with God. God's role is to take our faithfulness and use it for his purposes. So even before we get to this main advice for how do we live as exiles, we see this point here that God's calling to us is to be faithful, to walk with him whether we're in a good society and it's easy to be a Christian, a neutral society or a bad society or a bad relationship, whether it's easy to be a Christian or hard to be a Christian, whether we see a lot of fruit immediately, whether we invite our neighbors over for one barbecue and they all come to faith right there or it takes 15 years or we don't ever get to see it. God's calling in our life is to be faithful because we can be sure that he uses our faithfulness in ways that we could never 
ever imagine. In college, uh, some people might have called me a little bit overzealous in sharing my faith at times. And, uh, you know, I thought, I'm at a secular university. I'm going to put my Bible on my desk and just tell people about it. And, you know, it was good. It didn't make me a lot of friends at first, but it was, it was a good thing. And I just remember not seeing anybody come to faith and being so discouraged. I even had people yell at me. I had one guy cuss me out. I don't want to know that God. And, uh, and so I just, I, I found my zealousy wane over the years in college, but I was still sharing with people. Well, it was interesting, five years after college, I had two phone calls. Both were from the most adamant op- opponents of, being sh- of sharing the faith, including one of the guys that cussed me out for sharing my faith with him. He said, Jesse, sorry I yelled at you. Guess what? I'm now a Christian. Now, this was God's grace in showing me this glimpse getting to see faithfulness that God uses. Last week, I I was uh, almost brought to some deep emotions in getting to baptize the kids of the Widmans. Actually, I was emotionally emotional inside. Getting to baptize the kids of the Widmans, getting to draw them into the family of faith and celebrate God's goodness in the life of the Widmans. And afterwards, I got to talk to one of their friends. And one of uh, Joanna's friends, who that's the mother, one of her friends said, you know what, Jesse, i got to tell you, I started praying for Joanna when I was 14 years old, and she was 14. We were friends. And i got to admit, I never thought she'd come to know the Lord. And so then she broke into tears, and she said, to see her here, standing with her husband, baptizing their kids, was a great joy. Now, we don't know how much. We can't put a, a, a value and a figure to how much did God use the prayers of this 14-year-old girl. Was it 1% or 0.5% or 0.002%? We don't know. But somehow God used the faithfulness of this 14-year-old girl who was praying for her friend, not only to impact the life of her friend forever, but now to bring a new generation into the faith. And who knows When they have kids and they have kids, what impact that will have on their faith and their life forever, seeing generations changed, not in whole, but in part because of a 14-year-old girl's faithfulness. This is God's call to us. God used Jeremiah. God uses us when we're faithful. He used Jeremiah to declare his glory to the world. He used Jeremiah to set a pretext for God's revelation into the world. He used Jeremiah to point to Christ. God used Jeremiah to to encourage me one time when I was in Cambodia and just sort of struggling along and complaining and saying, woe is me, and being super whiny. God used Jeremiah to encourage me at that point. God recently used Jeremiah to encourage me personally in this congregation, in this setting, just to see the goodness of God in Jeremiah's life. You think Jeremiah, when he was going through his suffering and his pain and when he was being faithful, you think that somehow he thought he was pointing to Christ, definitely, and somehow, some way, 2,500-some years later, that some random, whiny, early, graying, 40-year-old Anglican priest would be encouraged by the work of Jeremiah. You think he was thinking any of that? God used his faithfulness. God uses all of our faithfulness for his purposes. So this is the first point. Be faithful. Good society, bad, neutral. Be faithful to God. So Jeremiah writes to the exiles. He says this in verse 4. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts to those who are in exile. Verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters into marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. So Jeremiah is writing, and you can pick this up from verse 8 and 9. Jeremiah is writing this letter to refute the dreams and sort of the happy sermons of the prophets and the dreamers that are there with them when they're in exile. So the sermons that the people were hearing were basically, hey, next season, you know, next spring we're going to be back before harvest. We're going to be back in Jerusalem. You're going to be back to your real life. Don't worry about it. This is all just temporary. And Jeremiah writes, actually, it's not temporary. You're going to be there for a while. So build houses, plant gardens, eat their produce, marry Marry your kids. So Jeremiah is putting it on the grandparents' frame, so it's going to be at least a generation. Jeremiah is saying to the people who are in exile, plant roots, invest, live. This is your new home. And this is the advice he has for the exiles. Now exile, one uh, commentator wrote, exile is being in a place you don't want to be with people that you don't want to be with. I thought that was a nice, simple. And when we live in exile, we are confronted with a daily choice. Will I focus my energy on intention on what is wrong, with what is bad, with what I don't like and feel sorry for myself? Or will I focus my time and energy on how I can live best right here, right now, where God has me? It's always easier to complain about problems than it is to live a life filled with hope and spirit-empowered virtue. Now, if, uh, if I've had a chance to talk with you a little bit about books I'm reading lately, you've probably heard me mention The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. It's a tome. It's a really hard read. Uh, it's a long read, which I, I like a lot. It's, it's where he traced this idea from the 16th century on through philosophy and politics and culture, tracing the development of the Western mindset and psyche that we find ourselves in. And it's interesting when you read this book and then you listen to the news or read social media or just hear different conversations, you go, wow, this is, this is pretty good. This sort of explains a lot. And at the end of the book, he has this wonderful pastoral chapter because basically the whole book is essentially bad news. Here's how society has changed this moral and this moral and this idea and this philosophy. And so this is why everything is untethered. And people are just reaching and straining for hope and they seem upset that they can't find that hope and joy. And this is why we've had it. And basically in the book, he says, the forces are so present and have so much inertia. There's not going to be much that changes in our society anytime soon. This is his prediction. And I love his response. His last chapter is pretty pastoral. His response to Christians. So you read through the book and you get sort of depressed. And he says, well, Christians, here's how you should live. And this is what he says uh, in reaction to our natural desire to react and lament and to polemicize those things around us. He says this. It should be Christians' natural state to feel that the times are out of joint and that we true not, truly do not belong here. In other words, we should feel like exiles. Yet lamentation can too often become just another form of worldliness and polemic simply a means of making ourselves feel righteous about ourselves. 
there can sometimes be an odd masochistic pleasure to always decrying the times and customs of the day. And in that sense, lamentation and polemic always run the risk of being less prophetic and more therapeutic in their motivation and effect. So he's pointing to the natural tendency to watch the news or read social media or have certain conversations and just despair and sit around with other people and say, isn't that so bad that this is happening? And say, yeah, that is terrible. Oh, did you hear this story? And you just sort of build this sort of negative view of the world. Of course, it's right to, to recognize truth and darkness and light. But to wallow in it, he's saying this is not helpful. Uh, it sort of reminds me of this quote by George Eliot in one of her novels. He says, everything of this character, everything's wrong, says he. That's a big text. But does he want to make everything right? Not he. He'd lose his text. Not so. <laughs> God's message to his people. God's message to his people in contrast to the spiral of therapeutic polemicizing and lamenting the times around us. God's message to his people through Jeremiah is choose to live, choose to invest, choose to bless. Build houses, plant gardens, marry, have children. Be prophetic in the sense of bringing God's truth for the sake of bringing God's blessing. Seek the welfare of the city. Be that vessel that the potter created you to be, this emblem of beauty that shows off the talent of the potter, but also bears a treasure of immeasurable value. Be that vessel. Now, it's interesting, speaking of the fruits of being faithful that Jeremiah didn't get to see, and I'll just get I'm wrapping up here. But the, uh, it turns out that the exile in Babylon turned out to be one of the most fruitful times in the life of the people of Judah. It was sort of like a renaissance of sorts for the people, where they got a chance to wipe away the facade of old patterns and bad habits and reinvest in who they were. And so it was this special time, if you read through history, the special time of flourishing of literature, of art, of renewed prayers, of establishing themselves in the community. This Babylonian exile community became actually, as best as you can have in the Old Testament, a pretty thriving community of faith that was in some ways trying to seek God. And so in some ways they did respond to Jeremiah's letter. Now, there's no verse in the Bible that says they responded to Jeremiah's letter and therefore had a renaissance. But if you follow the patterns and the history, you'll see that they responded and had a renaissance. And this was a response to Jeremiah being faithful to sharing the message of God. Now, I'll just end with this. For us, if we think about the recommendations that Jeremiah had for the people in exile, they were things like this. Build houses, plant gardens, marry, raise kids, bless the city. And on a list of glamorous, vision-filled, revolutionary ideas to do, to grab a hold of, to change a society, these are not the ones I'd put at the top of my list. They don't sound super motivating. Like, All right, we got this political rally. All right, guys, what I want you to do is go out, build houses, plant gardens, marry. It's not like what you'd call like a rally point engagement. Just normal life, committed to God, seeking his goodness, Embracing faithfulness, not needing immediate fruit, a spiritual dopamine, but just trusting God and walking along with him, seeking the good of the city. 
Now, this is why we as a church here at Christ the King, this defines our vision and our strategy. So we do have vision points and we do have strategy points, and I think those are important. But our main focus will always be the rhythms of gathering and worship, seeking the Lord in word and in sacrament at the table and in baptism, being intentional about committing ourselves to prayer, Encouraging each other to develop habits and patterns that build within us a non-anxious faith and trust in God so that we in turn can become a non-anxious presence for His name. Building community at dinners. By the way, we have this week and next week for our community dinners, and then we go back to our monthly schedule. Breakfast at the park, Monday mornings if you're free. Ladies, there's breakfast at Ashgrove Park. Bring one, bring all, have fun. You can talk to Sarah about that. Looking for ways that we can invite people into our lives just by being good neighbors. Pulling together a group of people to pray and research how we can bless this community around us. These are the pillars. These are the core points of our vision and our strategy. To some, they might not sound super revolutionary. But this is what God calls us to do, to be faithful, to live with him to seek the blessing of the city and those around us. I'll just close with this. Before the Apostle Peter called us exiles and sojourners in, uh, in his book, in his letter, he said this, you are, not a, you are exiles and sojourners, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You're a people who are in exile. And the next verse, that you're a people with a purpose and that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who've called you out of darkness into marvelous light. So this is who we are. We are God's people. We are sojourners. We are exiles. We are called and set apart by God to proclaim his excellencies to the world. As exiles, that happens by living in faithfulness together. And so as I read at the beginning of this message, I hope this is our prayer. That the Lord would teach us to number our, way, our days and to get a heart of wisdom. That we would number our days here in Virginia Village or in Denver or wherever you, wherever you live. That you're building houses and families and work lives, your studies, your seeking of relationships would have purpose and would have intention that you wouldn't need immediate feedback right away, although that is really fun, but that you would commit in faithfulness to walk with God and with each other. I want to invite you to do that together as a church. Let's encourage each other on towards love and good deeds. Let's be God's exiles together. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for this message, and we thank you that you are always with us as your spirit continue to encourage and carry Jeremiah on. We pray that you would do so with us as we face challenges and difficulties in our life, that we would be keenly aware that you are working in us and through us, that you love us and have drawn us out of the world and brought us into a people that you call your own, a royal priesthood with a purpose. So bless us, Lord, in this purpose. Walk with us, we do pray. In your great and holy name, amen.